0: Heavenly Father, it is wonderful to be Your child, it is amazing to us, Lord, that You would condescend to be among us, that You would walk among us, that You would share our trials and tribulations, that You would uh, share our hurts and pains with us, uh, but Lord, that is who You are. You are the empathetic God, the, the gracious God, the God who walks among His people. And Lord, that has always been your design. When you created humanity, you walked with them in the garden. And we see at the end of time that um, heaven and earth will be reconciled to each other, will be consummated and joined together, and the dwelling of God will be with people. You will live with us. You have chosen this, Lord, and we are humbled by your great love uh, in doing so. And Lord, we just can't wait. Uh, You are the eternal one. You are the one who answers every question. You are the one uh, with all great expression. Lord, what a wonderful thing it will be to sit at your feet, to see your glorious face, to hear your wonderful voice, and to hear what you say to us. All of your words, Lord, are life-giving. So, Lord, please help us look forward to hearing your voice. In the meantime, Lord, keep us at your feet in prayer. Remind us to pray. Urge us to pray. And Lord, when we read the Word, help it, Lord, to be life-giving to us. Help us to see how life-giving it is, how interesting it is, how wonderful it is, um, and how stimulating it is in our hearts and minds and souls to read your Word, to understand your Word. Lord, conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to become... Like the Bible says, little Christs, Christians, people who reflect you, reflect your character, reflect your glory, so that everywhere we go, we can be a blessing to others, just like you are a blessing to us. Help us this morning as we read your Word, as we contemplate your Word, to internalize your teaching. Move us, Lord. Help us to worship. Help us to serve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing our series on the Beatitudes. Uh, and remember, the Beatitudes is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. And the way I sort of look at it is that uh, the Beatitudes, if you, if you can conform yourself to the Beatitudes, then you will be ready to hear the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Hear it. Uh, internalize it receive it, and be conformed to it. Uh, if not, uh, maybe you're not ready yet, maybe there's some work that's got to be done in your heart and on, on your mind, and of course that is a continuous work that the Holy Spirit does in our, uh, in our mind and in our hearts to, to make us more like Christ, to remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Um, let's go ahead and start, let's just read the Beatitudes uh, together as our text and then we'll be, um, we'll be concentrating on verse 5. Matthew chapter five, verse one, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And remember, uh, the way I, I, I picture it, the way I want you to picture it is that he's been ministering all day with his disciples. Uh, he has seen people. He has seen what they're like. And, and the crowd stays in the village, but they go up, he and the disciples go up onto a mountainside and he does some uh, very strong teaching about what it's like to do ministry and, 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 and you need to conform to these, but you also need in your ministry to be looking for people who are already conformed to some of these images here because they are the ones that are ready for the gospel. They are the ones that are ready to receive the kingdom of God. So seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, that is when he assumed the posture of a teacher, assumed the posture of the rabbi, the the disciples came to him, and they sat at his feet too, and they, they sat there waiting to hear, knowing that he was about to opened his mouth, and all wisdom, all oracles, all teaching, all truth from God uh, was about to come out, and he taught them, and he continually taught them. Every time he taught, it was just like that. The great rabbi sits, the disciples come and sit, and they listen to him, and he opens his mouth, and all wisdom flows out, and he taught them, saying, "'Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.'" when men revile you and persecute you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. Back to verse 5. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, I'll, I'll confess to you that I've got a chip on my shoulder about something. Uh, in almost every Hollywood movie especially in an old Western, the preacher is a spineless coward. Whenever danger comes, whenever the Dalton gang enters town or whoever else it is, um, the preacher who is this very pharisaical person who is very stern, who uh, uh, puts all kinds of, of pressure, hypocritical pressure, on people to, to serve the Lord. When danger actually comes, he turns yellow, he melts, he's spineless, and he leaves, and it's left up to the gunslinger to save the day. And I hate it, I can't stand it, I resent it, because I am a preacher. <laughs> And I have always hated it and I wanted, always wanted to do everything I can to prove that stereotype wrong. Um, but the fact is, I don't have to do it. There are, in fact, several uh, clergy from history who were very brave people. I just got through reading a uh, a book. It was a very short book, and it was filled with seven mini biographies. And the book was written by Eric Metaxas. Eric Metaxas is a he's a believer and a great biographer. Uh, any of his books are are going to be really good. I, I, just just uh, Eric Metaxas. Just Google anything written by him and read it. You're going to love it. Uh, this book was actually the first book about by him that I ever read, and it's called Seven Men. Seven Men, and it's actually inspired uh, me. To a a sermon series down the road about fatherhood, uh, because several of these men, it was their father. They they had strong fathers in their life, uh, and and, and that is what pushed them to the greatness that they had. But in this this book, there are seven men, all Christian men, who did amazing things for God, and three of them were clergy. Three of them were clergy. Uh, The first one uh, that I came across in the book Was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was a German theologian uh, and pastor. And when um, when Hitler was rising to power, he came to the U.S. He actually spent a lot of time at a church in Harlem, and that was where he had this. Great um, encounter with a personal God, uh, whereas God you know, for theologians, for seminarians, God can become a a subject to be studied. But he saw in that church in Harlem a, a real people who loved a real God and had a personal relationship with Him, and it really brought him to uh, sort of a, a born again type uh, type status. When when that phrase born again, of course, it's in John, but but the spiritual rebirth that, that wasn't so um, so widespread in, in evangelism in those days. And he had a chance to stay in the United States. In fact, he he had his passage bought and paid for to go to the United States. Um, but he felt in his heart the leading of the Holy Spirit to stay in Nazi Germany after Hitler had risen to power and to preach against the Third Reich openly. And then when he couldn't do that anymore, preach against the Third Reich uh, underground. And when he couldn't do that, uh, take part in a plot to assassinate and remove Hitler. And it didn't work out. It didn't work out. And he spent many days, many years in uh, prison, writing, talking about ethics, talking about the, the choices that he made, talking about what it was like um, to serve God uh, to such extreme devotion. And he died days before the war was over. Terrible tragedy. And I believe he was exactly my age. So at his age, at that point in his ministry, the extreme bravery that was called upon him led to him having a timeless legacy by the time he was 43 years old. Incredible. Um, the second, the second uh, clergy, the a, a very brave clergyman in, in this uh, book, was a guy named Eric Little. And Eric Little was an Olympic runner. He uh, set a record in the 1924 Olympics. Uh, The movie Chariots of Fire is about him and about his Olympic career. Uh, What most people don't know about him, uh, if you know anything about him, is that afterwards he went to be a missionary in China. And he was there when the Japanese invaded. Uh, He sent his wife and daughter home, uh, got them out of China, uh, sent them to Canada, which is where they were from. He was Scottish, they were Canadian. Uh, He sent them there, but he decided to stay. He decided to stay and continued doing his work uh, in the midst of the chaos. Great bravery uh, to stay where you were while all the world around you is crumbling. And uh, he ended up being put into an internment camp, not really a concentration camp, but let's not say that it was a whole lot nicer than a concentration camp, but he was put into an internment camp with a whole bunch of other foreigners. Uh, and in that camp, he was this beacon of light and hope. I actually met a teacher, uh, and he's he's passed on now, but in the early 2000s, I met a guy named Don Snow. And Don Snow, when he was a kid, was in that camp with Eric Little. Uh, and he said that he really just brought a lot of hope to a very dark time uh, for the people in that camp. And he ended up dying of disease in that camp. But so many people were able to hold on a little bit longer because uh, there was a brave man who didn't want to get on a boat, who didn't go back to Canada, who stayed right there when it was, um, uh, probably very tempting to leave and to go back to the comforts um, of Canada at that time. Uh, the third, the third person in this book that was very inspiring was a young Polish man named Karol Wachaila, and I, I think I'm, uh, pronouncing his name correctly, I don't know. Um, you probably, you probably don't know that name, uh, but, he actually helped some, some Jewish people hide and run and, and get away from the Nazis. He also, uh, took classes, uh, underground classes, seminary classes, even taught some seminary classes, uh, during World War II and then later on behind the Iron Curtain in Poland. And he was a great blessing, uh, to many people, so much so that he rose in prominence because of, of what leadership, what brave leadership he uh, uh, he provided, you don't probably don't know him by his given name, but you probably do know him by uh, uh, he changed his name for some reason later in life to John Paul II. These men are known not for how many they killed, but for how many they kept alive, and how they risked their lives to do it during the most dangerous times. In modern history. They were men of great bravery, but they were also men of great meekness. Meekness is not always a celebrated attribute. It is thought of as being spineless, wimpy, cowardly, weak, a doormat. So if we're going to see what Jesus asks us to be and to do, I think we need some clarification here, because Jesus calls people to rise in great courage, in great difficulty, in great, uh, difficult circumstances and situations, and do amazing things. There's nothing cowardly about that. In, in his commentary on, uh, the book of Matthew, William Barclay, who is the commenter that I'm using for, uh, for this sermon series, he clarifies a little bit about what meekness is. And he talks about it in terms of the Old Testament, in terms of the New Testament. In the Old Testament, there's one person that we are told was the meekest person in all the world. And that was Moses. That was Moses. Now, if you start studying the the life of Moses, I think that you'll see, uh, you'll see somebody who saw great injustice and wanted to do something about it. In fact, he killed somebody uh, in in order to protect uh, a a Hebrew slave. But then he ran uh, because his life was in danger. Later, Years later, 40 years later, I might add, God calls upon him to go back to to Egypt to finish the job, finish the job of freeing the slaves. And at that point, we do find a very cowardly Moses who says, I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It's not going to work out. They won't even believe me there was a cynicism or a skepticism that the whole plan would work out. And I think he said, I tried that, and I just don't want to be a part of that ever again. But God moved in him, even threatened him, until Moses more or less had no choice. And after he goes back, we start to see some courage rise in him, some righteous indignation even, and he is able to come to the Pharaoh and start having these conversations and confrontations. And with God at his back, with God in his heart, with God pushing him forward, he led the, the, the people of Egypt, or the people of, of, of Israel, out of Egypt like a mighty army. He even commanded them as an army um, while they were wandering in the desert. He put down re- rebellions. He spoke uh, f- with God for them. He became a great leader. In fact, he's the Christ figure of the Old Testament, the lawgiver, the one who institutes the covenant. And by the end of his life, he exhibited great courage and leadership, but also meekness, so that at the end of his life, uh, when they describe him, they say, nobody was as meek as Moses. Now for the Greeks, so this is in the New Testament now, and for the Greeks, um, when Matthew u- chose to use the, 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 the Greek word for meek uh, when he's translating Jesus' words here, he's really evoking uh, something that even Aristotle talked about. Uh, the Greeks held meekness in high honor. It, it is one of the noblest attributes. When they talk about the character of a person, they put meekness way up high. So obviously, it cannot be something that means cowardly or weak or a doormat. When Barclay starts defining it, he, he uses a couple of pages to really talk about all these different angles from which you can see the word meek, what it can mean uh, in any given situation. And what it boils down to, to me, is it means uh, a person who has a moderate temperament. And it's not even just that. I'll talk about that in a moment, but a moderate temperament or a self-controlled temperament a person who is not given to extremes. Now, for human beings, if you look at us, I think you can tell that we are given to extremes. We very seldom find the happy middle. We go from very far this way to very far this way. Uh, anytime we have a problem over on this side, we, we swing way far the other direction. It's very hard for us to find and stay in this sweet spot right here in the middle. To just take a take an example, uh, look at all the different diet fads out there. Whenever somebody purposes in their heart to lose weight, they never ever do the hard thing of being moderate. They always go to some sort of extreme. And so you'll find people. Uh, there are basically three types of foods in our in our uh, uh, in our diet. Human beings can digest carbohydrates, proteins, or fats. All right, and so. When anybody starts to lose weight, there is a diet fad to completely cut out one of those fuels that you need for your for the human body. Uh, we have many different food, you know.